are starting our, our first of what we hope will be several new external campuses. I happen to believe, many of us believe, that this, is, this initiative is the single most important thing we have done as a church since we relocated to this campus just about eight years ago. Amazing what God is doing around the world in reaching people through church planting. One of the main ways God is reaching people. Uh, we are committed to this and to other uh, new campuses as God leads, as God opens doors, as God guides us. And we are praying that 200 of you will form this nucleus that will commit to a year to see this uh, church uh, get established and flourish. And I want all of you over the next five weeks to be praying that God's going to do incredible things. Now, it was just a week ago today that Rhonda and I were driving back from Colorado, and we stopped in Omaha, Nebraska uh, to have dinner with the billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Not really. <laughs> we stopped to go to a movie, uh, a, a new release, uh, Jason Bourne. I want to be Jason Bourne when I grow up. We as a, a family love that movie series. We read the books. We, we talk about them. I'm a huge Robert Ludlum fan, have been. I think I've read almost everything he's ever uh, written. But the reason our family is so into this Jason Bourne series is because no matter how bad it gets, uh, no matter how often Jason Bourne is betrayed and beaten by the very people that should be supporting him, in his case the CIA, he is unshaken. Now there's all sorts of reasons why these books and movie series have been so wildly successful. One is it's great acting in the movie, it's a great story, uh, but another thing that's going on is our culture longs for examples of people who in the face of overwhelming odds are immovable. And that is the great Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And it's why we've entitled this series Unshaken. He was one of the most immovable men who has ever lived, ever ministered, and especially in an incredibly difficult climate like uh, Jeremiah had. Now, unlike Jason Bourne, uh, Jeremiah is not a fictitious character. He's a real person who walked the dusty and decadent streets of Jerusalem 2,600 years ago. But he wasn't a spy, he was a prophet. And even though he was a prophet, like, like born, he was rejected by the very people that should be supporting him. In his case, Israel, his fellow Jews. And because he was a prophet, his weapon wasn't a gun. His weapon was truth. The word of God. The truth that God continually revealed to him. And along the way, God planted his truth so deeply in Jeremiah's soul that it boiled up and produced this un shakable, unwavering, courageous faith in the living God, despite overwhelming odds. That's why I've said in this series that Jeremiah, I think, was one of the greatest men, greatest men that has ever lived. 
Now today, we come to what is perhaps the most important passage in the entire book of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, it's the longest Old Testament quote, or the all longest Old Testament passage, I should say, quoted in its entirety in the New Testament. Longest one. But this passage isn't a story about Jeremiah. It's a prophecy. It's a promise that God gives to Jeremiah about the future. About the grace God, God will one day show his disobedient, sinful people in what is called the new covenant. So grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. And we're going to look at Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. It's, page, uh, it's about page 790 in the Bibles and the racks. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, and here it is, a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. An interesting descriptor God uses of himself. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Why? For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Now, do you see uh, what made Jeremiah tick? It wasn't his wealth. He didn't have any. It wasn't his circumstances. They were just flat awful. It was his confidence in promises like this. Now, I don't know where your life is headed. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what's around the corner with mine. I don't know where our world is headed. But I do know if you want to live a life of hope, in a world full of increasing despair, then like Jeremiah, be confident in these glorious promises of God, the plan of God, the reign and the rule of God. What God offers his people here in Jeremiah 31 is just stunning. It's really beyond our comprehension. It is the central revelation of the Bible. It's what links the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, together. Here, it's described as the new covenant. So I want to do three things. I want to talk about what a covenant is, so we can understand that. Then I want to talk about what this new covenant is, why it matters so much, uh, especially. And then how the hope that it offers us completely, totally changes us. So what we're going to do is look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, how they come together in this. It's just beautiful. It is crazy what's going on here. So what is a covenant? 
Well, the, co- the word covenant is the dominant word here in these four verses. <coughs> Ex- excuse me, it occurs four times. There are two references to the previous or what we call the old covenant that God established with Israel at Mount Sinai when he gave Israel the Ten Commandments. But most importantly and shockingly in the first verse, verse 31, God promises his disobedient people a new covenant. This is like a father saying, I know you murdered all my children. But man, am I going to bless you. It's crazy, this new covenant. It's completely and totally undeserved. You see, a biblical covenant is a binding relationship where God promises to bless his people and his people promise to obey him. Binding relation, promises to bless, people promise to obey. But it's always, always rooted in God's initiative. That's exactly what we see here. God says, I will make this covenant. I'm taking the initiative, but also it always looks for a response from people, from us. Now, we need to unpack this because this covenant relationship concept is rapidly disappearing in our culture today. I'll come back to that. But what I want you to know is throughout the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God always relates to us, his people, through a covenant. Now, why? Well, well, a covenant is more personal, it's more intimate than a legal contract. And it's more binding, it's more durable than a relationship based on feelings. So let's take the Old Testament. God doesn't show up at Mount Sinai and say to Moses... Hey, I want to enter in a covenant relationship with you. Just sign this and I'll be back in five. 5,000 years. Nor does God show up and say to Moses on the other hand, Hey, hey, hey Moses, how you feeling? Uh, how are my people, the Jews, feeling about me right now? No, God shows up and says, I'll do this, you do this, and we can have a relationship. That's a covenant. And biblical covenants are always, always, always a blend of law and love. Law and love. Now for those of you that are new to Christianity, trying to figure this out, not sure about Christianity, uh, this blend of law and love is really, really significant for a couple of reasons. And the first... Uh, is that today we tend to think of God, when we think about God, as a one-dimensional God. So, for example, on the one hand, we tend to think uh, that, that God is all loving, that God is an easy God, that God, you know, accepts everyone and everything. He's like this benevolent grandfather in the sky. But on the other hand, some of us think, well, God is aloof. God is stern. God is a law-giving God who tells us that we must do this or we must do that, and then he watches from a 
a, a, a distance. But the God of the Bible is not a one-dimensional God. He is both holy and loving, law-giving and, and forgiving. He is a complex God, not a superficial God, just as we are complex people. Uh, we spent um, a, a week or so with our kids. Uh, uh, three of the, our grandkids were under the age of two. And, you know, I, I was just reminded all over again how complex a little 10-month-old baby is, right? We are complex people. Ask anybody that's married. Why do we think God is a one-dimensional God? Either all loving or all demanding. No, uh, God is holy and love. But there's another reason this mix of law and love is, is so important because what it tells us is through all the covenants in the Bible, God longs for a deep relationship with us. A relationship that flows from the heart. That's not about, that's a heart thing, not just a behavior thing. Why? Because in a covenant, both parties vow to be faithful in spite of circumstances or feelings. Uh, the, the great human example of this is marriage. So over the years, and a, a variety of different uh, marriage ceremonies I, I, I performed, I, I will say, will you forsake all others to cling to your spouse? And the young groom, you know, the young groom is all macho, and he's overconfident, and, and, and really all he's thinking about is the honeymoon. And, and he said, oh, yeah, man, it, it just flows. You know, I, I, I got this. Yes, I do. Now, the young bride's a little different. She's wiser. And, and, and so when you ask these questions where she's to repeat, I, I, I do, she, she gulps. Tears well up in her eyes. And then she says, I do. But really what she's thinking is, I sure hope Buck Stud here turns out okay. <laughs> there is no relationship more binding than a, than a marriage relationship in the fullest sense of the term. And what's so interesting is that this mix of law and love expressed in the covenants means God is calling us into not a casual, not a thin relationship, but a thick, robust, meaningful, significant relationship with him where we experience him on the inside and it affects our mind, our emotions, and our will. We feel God. We walk in his presence. So not surprising, you look at verse 32, at the end of the verse, how does God describe himself? He describes himself as a husband. That's covenant language. God longs for a meaningful relationship with us. When I was 20 years old and living in the city of Dallas, I loved Dallas, lived there a long time, I was in college as a 20-year-old. I was a non-Christian. I was having a blast. I thought I had the world at my fingertips, like all college students do. 
But what kept me from God is that I didn't want to lose my freedom. I wanted to have fun. And I thought, Christians didn't have fun. And what was going on at the time, and I had no idea of this, God was in the process of drawing me to himself. And he was about to give me an experience of freedom and joy and covenant relationship with him that would exceed my wildest expectations and make all my concepts of fun pale in comparison. And the moment I came to Jesus Christ in the city of Dallas, Texas, there was no, there was no looking back. And that brings us to the new covenant, to what Jesus offers us that Jeremiah here is prophesying about. So let's go on to this second issue of what is the new covenant, especially why does it matter so much? Now I've got to do a little work here, so I need you to hang with me because here we're bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And let me set it up like this. When you read the Bible, you find two conflicting themes. These can, the fact that they conflict with one another can be very disturbing to us. And on the one hand, there are many, many passages in the Bible where God says, obey me and I will bless you. Disobey me and I will curse you. Dozens and dozens. Let's just look at one from Deuteronomy 28. Moses is speaking and he says, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. And all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, oh, let me just say, then beginning in verse 3, uh, Moses lists all the blessings. Now we're going to skip down to verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I'm giving to you today, then all these curses will come upon you. And then Moses lists the curses. So think about this. I mean, leave this up here for just a moment. These blessings and these curses are conditional upon Israel's obedience. That's the point of the word if that begins verse 1 and verse 15. And there are many, many passages that, that speak like this. But on the other hand, over here, there's all sorts of, uh, of passages that contain marvelous promises from God that are completely and totally unconditional. So look at Judges 2.1. God says, I will never break my covenant with you. We see this also expressed in verses 35 and 36 in Jeremiah 31. So the question is, now hang with me, the question is, which is it? Is our relationship with God conditional or unconditional? Is it grounded in our obedience or is it grounded in his grace? Now this isn't just an academic issue. It's a highly, highly personal issue. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. Some people have their consciences screwed on too tight. 
So they feel guilty a lot. They feel like they don't measure up. There's this thing in the back of their head that tells them that they're not good enough. And so they tend to be rigid. They tend to be fearful. It's very hard for them to forgive themselves. It's very hard for them to forgive others. Their consciences are screwed on too tight. Other people, on the other hand, well, their consciences are screwed on too loose. <laughs> and they were probably told, well, they're going up, uh, they're great. And so they developed this inordinate self-esteem. And the downside taken to an extreme is they become self-indulgent, self-centered. And they tend to be disloyal. And they jump from one thing to the other depending on what's in it for them. And they have no idea, they have no idea the damage they do to other people. Everyone, everyone falls into one of these two categories. Conscious too tight, conscious too loose. Either uh, they're a moralist or a legalist or a relativist. And what I think is so interesting, and I've observed this as a pastor over the years, is that um, legalists, tend to marry relativists. And how's that working for you? It's just fascinating. So I'm back to the question. Is our relationship with God conditional or unconditional? Is it based on law or is it based on his love? And this is precisely all that to say this is where the new covenant comes in. Look at verse 33. The first thing God talks about in describing the new covenant is law. Well, wait a minute. I thought the Old Testament was law and not the New Testament. No, the first thing God uh, talks about in promising this new covenant is law. He says, I will put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. A covenant always has to have law. The new covenant didn't do away with the Ten Commandments. Um, Instead, what's new here is that God promises to build his law into our minds and our hearts from the inside out. He says, I'm going to give you the desire to obey me. I'm going to write it on your heart. I'm going to transform you from the inside so you will want to obey me. But there's more. Not only is there law here, there's also love. Look at the very end of verse 34. Verse 34 is a long verse. What does God say at the end? He says, for I will forgive you. I will forgive them and remember my people's sins no more. In other words, it's not just forgiveness, but it's forgiveness on steroids to such an extent, to such a level, that God remembers his sins no more. What did you say you did? I don't remember that. So the new covenant, like the old covenant, is both law and love. But it comes from it within. It's a grace gift God gives us that completely and totally transforms us. And that's what's going on here in this promise. Now we need to get more specific. We need to ask the question, well, how in the world can this be? 
And so we fast forward 600 years to Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus' last night with the disciples. It's just hours before he will be crucified. And during the Passover meal, Jesus initiates what we will celebrate today, what we call communion or the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. And what does Jesus say? Well, look at Luke 22. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. There it is. Jesus is saying he is fulfilling the 600-year-old promise of Jeremiah 31. He is saying to the disciples, hey, you remember what Jeremiah said? And they would have remembered Jeremiah 31. He says, tonight it becomes true. Because tonight I will shed my blood, I will die for human sin. Now Jesus is saying that the disciples don't completely get this, that it's my death that will bring about a new, more binding, more transforming uh, covenant that will change you from the inside out. And now we get a little deeper. Because we ask the question, well, how in the world can this be? And the answer is complex. Because the answer isn't just Jesus' perfect death, but it's also Jesus' perfect life. You see, Jesus Christ was the only human, and he was fully human, fully God, fully human, who ever lived, who obeyed the law perfectly in every detail. There was never a nanosecond in Jesus' life where he disobeyed any aspect, any fiber of one of the Ten Commandments. So as a matter of fact, Jesus said in the Gospels, he fulfilled all righteousness. Now hang with me. That means in his perfect obedience, he fulfilled the conditions of the covenant, the conditions of the law. And therefore, because of his perfect obedience, he earned the blessings of the covenant. But then, in the most dramatic moment in all of human history, he took the curse of the covenant on himself. Dying in our place to satisfy the demands of a just and holy God who must judge covenant breakers. And this is what Paul is getting at in Galatians 3 and verse 13. Look at how he expresses it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now what's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is a failure to keep the law in its entirety. So Jesus became the curse. He fulfilled the law and the blessings of the law, but he became the curse of the law. And he lived a life without sin. Therefore, and this is where this gets absolutely incredible, 
when we believe, when we believe in Jesus, the blessings of the covenant become ours. Irrevocably, eternally, fully, and, and, and completely. And, and more, God writes his law in our minds and in our hearts. And he changes us so we want to obey him, we want to serve him. It's what the Bible elsewhere calls salvation or regeneration or redemption or the new birth or being born again. Jesus takes the curse we deserve and gives us the blessings he deserved so that we might live a life we can't live on our own. And what is the result? Well, one of the ways the result gets expressed is in verse 32, or 33 rather. Look in the middle of verse 33. I will be their God. And they will be my people. An extraordinary, extraordinary expression of intimacy. Christianity is never merely an intellectual thing. It's a deeply experiential thing involving all aspects of our lives. And when you say to someone, I am yours, and that's what God is promising here, what you are saying is, I give up my independence for you. And the way God, the God of the universe, gave up his independence is he left the splendor of heaven, became a man, and died on the cross for our sins. <laughs> so we're back to this question. Is the covenant conditional on human obedience? And the answer is yes. But it's not your obedience, it's Jesus's. His perfect obedience that satisfied the requirements of the law, fulfilled the demands of the covenant. So when you believe God can unconditionally forgive you and bless you forever, throughout eternity. And so what we have in this passage is God linking the old covenant and the new covenant and, and promising the advent of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, and it is life-changing. Now talk about hope. Let me conclude with this. If we get this, this hope completely and totally changes our lives. Let me mention a couple of ways. First of all, it completely changes our approach to God. If we understand the New Testament or the New Covenant, the gospel of the New Testament, it completely changes our approach to God. Now hear me. There are only three approaches to God in all of life. Religion, irreligion, or the gospel. Another way to say it is moralism, relativism, or the new covenant. That's Jeremiah's language. It's his phrase for the gospel. Now, whether you're a non-Christian or a, a Christian, this clarifies your life because it clarifies your approach to God. 
You see, on the one hand, uh, many of us tend to think, you know, if I just do more, if I, uh, uh, for you Christians, you know, if I surrender more, if I, I, I pray more, if I believe more, if, I, uh, if, if, if I'm more spiritual, then, then God will do this, or, or, or God will do that, and God will bless me and, and accept me. But the spiritual life isn't a function of what you do, it's a function of what Jesus Christ has done. You can't be perfect, only Jesus can be perfect. And if you believe that, this do-do-doism, yeah, that's religion, it's moralism, it's not the gospel. And you will never have hope. But on the other hand, and let me talk about this in terms of Christians. Let's, let's say you had an experience at a camp as a little kid. And so you would say, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay with God. And if you, as you travel through your life, you think, you know, I've been forgiven, so it doesn't really matter how I live. It doesn't really matter whether I give to the church or not financially or give to the poor. It, it doesn't matter, you know, I'm really busy. It doesn't matter if I pray. It doesn't matter if I read the word. It doesn't matter if I attend church on a, a regular basis. Man, life is coming at me hard. You know, God, God accepts me. And what happens is you become, in the language of revelation, you become lukewarm, spiritually lazy. But if we genuinely know Christ, I mean, look at the language of the new custom, covenant. God has embedded his law in our hearts and our minds. So we want to obey him, we want to serve him, we want to love him. We're all in. Anything else is relativism or irreligion, even when we claim to know Jesus. And it's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. It's not the new covenant. The gospel isn't just the starting line. It's the whole race. We never move beyond the gospel. You are saved by believing in the gospel, but you are transformed as you go through life in every part of your heart and your mind and your will by believing the gospel more and more deeply. And when you embrace the gospel and cling to the gospel, what does it do? It produces hope. There's not hope in religion. There's not hope in irreligion. There's hope in the gospel. You have a confident expectation about a guaranteed result. Forgiveness, eternal life, heaven. And that makes you unshakable. Because everything else pales in comparison. Second, the hope of the gospel enables you to overcome your tendency, your tendency toward disloyalty. All of us struggle with disloyalty. All of us struggle with loyalty. It's part of the fall. In the United States, this has become 
exacerbated because um, covenant relationships have been replaced by consumer relationships. A consumer relationship is a relationship you have to your gas station, your grocery store, or, or a restaurant. Now, there's nothing wrong with consumer relationships. Uh, we need them, but a consumer relationship is where your needs are more important than the relationship. A covenant relationship is just the opposite. It's where the relationship is more important than your needs. Think marriage. It's a relationship where you are bound. And as Jesus demonstrates on the cross, it can be incredibly costly. And I say this because while there always has to be room for consumer relationships, it's the new, the hope of the new covenant that enables us to see there's got to be room in our lives for covenant relationships. Starting with our relationship with God. Then our relationship with our family, our relationship with our friends, and our relationship with the church. And you can, you can add others. And it's the hope of the new covenant, this incredible relation-making God and all that he offers us in his son that enables us to resist the downward pressure to reduce all relationships to consumer relationships. And so when you see Jesus' death, you think, my stars, he did this for me? The agony was so great that even poor Jesus went to the cross, the very thought of it turned his sweat to blood. He did this for me. Therefore, in seeing that, I will be more loyal. I will be more patient. I will be less angry. And you experience thick, not thin, but thick community. Finally, and I'll end with this, the, the hope of the new covenant, the, the hope of the gospel of, of Jesus helps you to get over your uh, uncertainty and distrust of God. Now, we do not know why God, we, we don't have the answer to the question, why does God allow suffering and evil? Uh, these things that are just horrific. But in light of the new covenant, we know what the answer isn't. We know the answer isn't God doesn't care. Because God takes human, I mean, think about this, human misery, suffering, evil, uh, brokenness, and sin so seriously that he laid it all on his son. And Christianity is the only religion, the only religion in the world that says God has given himself to you. God has taken the plunge of love for you. God gave up his independence for you to give you a life and an experience beyond your wildest expectations. Now, you may not like everything about our life, your life. Who does? But the new covenant and this table we're coming to, which pictures the new covenant, means you can trust God. He took the hit for you. 
And that hope will never disappoint. And you will be, you will be unshakable. And what our world desperately needs today are followers of Jesus Christ that are not shakable, but unshakable. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to this table of grace, I ask you that you would open our eyes, that this picture would, um, that you would use this picture to enable us to see Jesus in his majesty, his beauty, his love, and his suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.